The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. Chapter 3, The Mystery of Contentment Continued. The mystery of contentment may be shown even more. A gracious heart gets contentment in a mysterious way, a way that the world is not acquainted with. 8. He lives upon the dew of God's blessing. Adrian Junius uses the simile of a grasshopper to describe a contented man. And he says, and he says he has this motto, I am content with what I have, and I hope for better. A grasshopper leaps and skips up and down and lives on the dew. A grasshopper does not live on the grass as other things do. You do not know what it feeds upon. Other things, though as little as grasshoppers, feed upon seeds or little flies and such things. But as for the grasshopper, you do not know what it feeds upon. In the same way, a Christian can get food that the world does not know of. He is fed in a secret way by the dew of the blessing of God. A poor man or woman who has but a little with grace lives a more contented life than his rich neighbor who has a great income. We find it so ordinarily. Though they have but a little, yet they have a secret blessing of God with it, which they cannot express to anyone else. If you were to come to them and say, How is it that you live as happily as you do? They cannot tell you what they have, but they find there is a sweetness in what they do enjoy. And they know by experience that they never had such sweetness in former times, even though they had a greater abundance in former times than they have now. Yet they know they never had such sweetness. But how this comes about, they cannot tell. We may mention some considerations in what godly men enjoy, which make their condition sweet. For example, take these four or five considerations with which a godly man finds contentment in what he has, though it is ever so little. One, because in what he has, he has the love of God to him. If a king were to send a piece of meat from his own table, it would be a great deal more pleasant to a courtier than if he had twenty dishes as an ordinary allowance. If the king sends even a little thing and says, Go and carry it to that man as a token of my love, oh, how delightful would that be to him! When your husbands are at sea and they send you a token of their love, it is worth more than forty times what you already have in your houses. Every good thing the people of God enjoy, they enjoy it in God's love, as a token of God's love, and coming from God's eternal love to them. And this must needs be very sweet to them. 2. What they have is sanctified to them for good. Other men have what they enjoy in a way of common providence, but the saints have it in a special way. Others have what they have and no more, meat and drink and houses and clothes and money, and that's all. But a gracious heart finds contentment in this. I have it, and I have a sanctified use of it, too. I find God goes along with what I have to draw my heart nearer to him and sanctify my heart to him. If I find my heart drawn nearer to God by what I enjoy, that is much more than if I have it without any sanctifying of my heart by it. There is a secret dew that goes along with it, the dew of God's love in it, and the dew of sanctification. 3. A gracious heart has what he has free of cost. He is not likely to be called to pay for it. The difference between what a godly man has and a wicked man has is this. A godly man is as a child in an inn. An innkeeper has a child in the house and provides his diet and lodging and what is needful for him. 
Now a stranger comes, and he has dinner and supper provided and lodging, but the stranger must pay for everything. It may be that the child's fare is meaner than the fare of the stranger. The stranger has boiled and roast and baked, but he must pay for it. There must come a reckoning for it. Just so it is. Many of God's people have only mean fare, but God as Father provides it. And it's free of cost. They do not pay for what they have. It is paid for before. But the wicked, in all their pomp and pride and finery, they have what they ask for, but they must, there must come a reckoning for everything. They must pay for all at the conclusion. And, it is, and is it not better to have a little free of cost than to have to pay for everything? Grace shows a man that what he has, he has free of cost. From God as from a father, and therefore it must needs be very sweet. Number four, a godly man may very well be content, though he has only a little. For what he does have, he has by right of Jesus Christ, by the purchase of Jesus Christ. He has a right to it, a different kind of right to that which a wicked man can have to what he has. Wicked men have certain outward things. I do not say they are usurpers of what they have. They have a right to it, and that before God. But how? It is a right by mere donation. That is, God by his free bounty gives it to them. But the right that the saints have is a right of purchase. It is paid for, and it is their own. And they may, in a holy manner and holy way, claim whatever they have need of. We cannot express the difference between the right of a holy man and the right of a wicked man more fully than by the following simile. A criminal is condemned to die, and yet, by favor, he has his supper provided overnight. Now, though the criminal has forfeited all his rights to all things, to every bit of bread, yet, if he is given his supper, he does not steal it. This is true, though he has forfeited all rights by his faults, and after he has once been condemned, he has no right to anything. Well, so it is with the wicked. They have forfeited all their right to the comforts of this world. They are condemned by God as criminals and are going to execution. But if God in his bounty gives them something to preserve them here in the world, they cannot be said to be thieves or robbers. But if a man is given a supper overnight before his execution, is that like the supper that he is wont to have in his own house when he ate his own bread and had his wife and children about him? Oh, a dish of green herbs at home would have been a great deal better than any dainties in such a supper as that. But a child of God has not a right merely by donation. What he has is his own, through the purchase of Christ. Every bit of bread you eat, if you are a godly man or woman, Jesus Christ has bought it for you. You go to the market and buy your meat and drink with your money, but know that before you buy it or pay money, Christ has bought it at the hand of God the Father with his blood. You have it at the hands of men for money, but Christ has bought it at the hand of his Father by his blood. Certainly it is a great deal better and sweeter now, though it is but a little. 5. There is another thing that shows the sweetness that is in the little that the saints have, by which they come to have contentment, whereas others cannot. That is, every little that they have is but an earnest penny, a first installment which guarantees the rest is to follow and earnest for all the glory that is reserved for them. It is given them by God as a forerunner of those eternal mercies that the Lord intends for them. Now, if a man has but twelve pence given to him as an earnest penny for some great possession that he must have, is that not better than if he had forty pounds given to him otherwise? 
So every comfort that the saints have in this world is an earnest penny to them of those eternal mercies that the Lord has provided for them. Just as every affliction that the wicked have here is but sorrows, the beginning of sorrows, and the forerunner of those eternal sorrows that they are likely to have hereafter in hell, so every comfort you have is a forerunner of those eternal mercies you shall have with God in heaven. Not only are the consolations of God's Spirit the forerunners of those eternal comforts you shall have in heaven, but when you sit at your table and rejoice with your wife and children and friends, you may look upon every one of those but as a forerunner, yea, the very earnest penny of eternal life to you. Now, if that is so, it is no marvel that a Christian is contented, but this is a mystery to the wicked. I have what I have from the love of God, and I have it sanctified to me by God, and I have it free from cost, free of cost from God by the purchase of the blood of Jesus Christ, and I have it as a forerunner of those eternal mercies that are reserved for me, and in this my soul rejoices." There is a secret due of God's goodness and blessing upon him and his estate that others have not. But all this may see, by all this, you may see the meaning of that scripture. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without right. Proverbs 16.8 A man who has but a little, yet if he has it with righteousness, it is better than a great deal without right. Yea, better than the great revenues of the wicked. So you have it in another scripture. That is the next thing in Christian contentment. The mystery is in this, that he lives on the dew of God's blessing in all the good things that he enjoys. Number nine. Not only in good things does a Christian have the dew of God's blessing and find them very sweet to him, but in all the afflictions, all the evils that befall him, he can see love and can enjoy the sweetness of love in his afflictions as well as in his mercies. The truth is that the afflictions of God's people come from the same eternal love that Jesus Christ came from. Jerome said, He is a happy man who is beaten when the stroke is a stroke of love. All God's strokes are strokes of love and mercy. All God's ways are mercy and truth. To those that fear him and love him, Psalm 25.10, The ways of God, the ways of affliction, as well as the ways of prosperity, are mercy and love to him. Grace gives a man an eye, a piercing eye, to pierce into the counsel of God. Those eternal counsels of God, for good to him, even in his afflictions, he can see the love of God in every affliction, as well as in prosperity. Now this is a mystery to the carnal heart. They can see no such thing. Perhaps they think God loves them when he prospers them and makes them rich, but they think God loves them not when he afflicts them. That is a mystery. But grace instructs men in that mystery. Grace enables men to see love in the very frown of God's face and so come to receive contentment. 10. A godly man has contentment as a mystery because just as he sees all his afflictions come from the same love that Jesus Christ did, so he sees them all sanctified in Jesus Christ, sanctified in a mediator. He sees, I say, all the sting and venom and poison of them taken out by the virtue of Jesus Christ, the mediator between God and man. For instance, when a Christian would have contentment, he works it out thus. What is my affliction? Is it poverty that God strikes me with? Well, Jesus Christ had not a house to hide his head in. 
The fowls of the air had nests in the fox's holes, but the son of man had not a hole to hide his head in. Now my poverty is sanctified by Christ's poverty. So my poverty is not afflictive. If I can be contented in such a condition, that is the way. Not to stand and repine because I have not what others have. No, but I am poor and Christ was poor that he might bless my poverty to me. And so again, am I disgraced or dishonored? Is my good name taken away? Why, Jesus Christ had dishonor put on him. He was called Beelzebub and a Samaritan, and they said he had a devil in him. All the foul aspersions that could be were cast upon Jesus Christ. And this was for me, that I might have the disgrace that is cast upon me, sanctified to me. Whereas another man's heart is overwhelmed with dishonor and disgrace, and he seeks in that way to get contentment. Perhaps you've spoken ill of, and you have no other way to ease and right yourselves. But if they abuse you, you will abuse them back. And so you think to ease yourself. Oh, but a Christian has another way to ease himself. Others abuse and speak ill of me. But did they not abuse Jesus Christ and speak ill of him? And what am I in comparison to Christ? And the subjection of Christ to such an evil was for me that though such a thing could come upon me, I might know that the curse of it is taken from me through Christ's subjection to evil. Thus, a Christian can be content when anybody speaks ill of him. Now, this is a mystery to you, to get contentment in this way. So if men jeer and scoff at you, did they not do so to Jesus Christ? Well, they jeered and scoffed at him. And that when he was in his greatest extremity upon the cross, they said, Here is the king of the Jews. And they bowed the knee, and they said, Hail, king of the Jews. And they put a reed in his hand, and they mocked him. Now, I get contentment in the midst of scorns and jeers by considering that Christ was scorned and by acting faith upon what Christ suffered for me. Am I in great bodily pain? Now, Jesus Christ had as great pain in his body as I have. Though it is true he did not have the same kind of sickness as we have, yet he had a great deal of pain and torture in his body, and that which was deadly to him, as many, as much as any sickness is to us. The exercising of faith on what Christ endured is the way to get contentment in the midst of our pains. Someone lies, vexing and fretting himself, and cannot bear his pain. Are you a Christian? Have you ever tried this way of getting contentment, to act your faith on all the pains and sufferings that Jesus Christ suffered? This would be the way of contentment, and a Christian gets contentment when under pains in his way. Sometimes one who is very godly and gracious may be found bearing grievous pains and extremities very cheerfully, and you wonder at it. He gets it by acting his faith upon what pains Jesus Christ suffered. You're afraid of death. The way to get contentment is by exercising your faith in the death of Jesus Christ. It may be that you have inward troubles in your soul, and God withdraws himself from you. Still, your faith is to be exercised upon the sufferings that Christ endured in his soul. He poured forth his soul before God, and when he sweats drops of water and blood, he was in agony in his very spirit, and found even God himself about to forsake him. Now, thus to act your faith on Jesus Christ brings contentment. And is not this a mystery to carnal hearts? A gracious heart finds contentment as a mystery. It is no marvel that St. Paul said, I am instructed in a mystery to be contented in whatsoever condition I am in. 11. 
There is still a further mystery, for I hope you will find this a very useful point, and that before you've finished you will see how simple it is for one who is skilled in religion to get contentment, though it is hard for one who is carnal. I say the eleventh mystery in contentment is this. A gracious heart has contentment by getting strength from Jesus Christ. He is able to bear his burden by getting strength from someone else. Now this is a riddle, and it would be counted ridiculous in the schools of the philosophers to say, if there is a burden on you, you must get strength from someone else. Indeed, if you must have another come and stand under the burden, they can understand that. But that you should be strengthened by the strength of someone else who is not near you, as far as you can see, well, they would think that ridiculous. But a Christian finds satisfaction in every circumstance by getting strength from another, by going out of himself to Jesus Christ, by his faith acting upon Christ, and bringing the strength of Jesus Christ into his own soul. He is thereby enabled to bear whatever God lays on him by the strength that he finds from Jesus Christ. Of his fullness do we receive grace for grace. There is strength in Christ not only to sanctify and save us, but strength to support us under all our burdens and afflictions. And Christ expects that when we are under any burden, we should act our faith upon him to draw virtue and strength from him. Faith is the great grace that is to be acted under afflictions. It is true that other graces should be acted, but the grace of faith draws strength from Christ. In looking on him, who has the fullness of all strength conveyed into the hearts of all believers. Now, if a man has a burden to bear, and yet can have strength added to him, if the burden is doubled, he can have his strength trebled. The burden will not be heavier, but lighter than it was before his natural strength. Indeed, our afflictions may be heavy, and we cry out, Oh, we cannot bear them. We cannot bear such an affliction. Though you cannot tell him, you cannot tell how to bear it with your own strength, yet how can you tell what you will do with the strength of Jesus Christ? You say you cannot bear it, so you think that Christ could not bear it. But if Christ could bear it, why may you not come to bear it? You will say, Can I have the strength of Christ? Yes, it is made over to you by faith. The scripture says that the Lord is our strength. God himself is our strength, and Christ is our strength. There are many scriptures to that effect, that Christ's strength is yours, made over to you so that you may be able to bear whatever lies upon you. And therefore, we find such a strange expression in the epistle of St. Paul to the Colossians, praying for the saints, that they might be strengthened with all might according unto his glorious power. Unto what? Unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Strengthened with all might according to the power of God, the glorious power of God, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, you must not therefore be content with a little strength, so that you are able to bear what a man might bear by the strength of reason and nature. But you should be strengthened with all might, according to the glorious power of God, unto all patience and to all long-suffering. O oh, you who are now under very heavy and sad afflictions, more than usual, Look at this scripture and consider how it might be made good in you. And why may you not have this scripture made good in you, if you are godly? You should not be quiet in your own spirits, unless in some measure you get this scripture made good in you, so that you may, with some comfort, say, Through God's mercy I find that strength, 
I find that strength coming into me that is spoken of in this scripture. You should labor when you are under any great affliction, you who are godly, to walk so that others may see such a scripture made good in you. This is the glorious power of God that strengthens his servants to all long-suffering, and that with joyfulness. Alas, it may be that you do not exercise as much patience as a wise man or wise woman who has only natural resources. But where is the power of God, the glorious power of God? Where is the strengthening with all might unto all long-suffering and patience and that with joyfulness? It is true, the spirit of a man may be able to sustain his infirmities, may be able to sustain and keep up his spirits. The natural spirit of a man can do that, but much more when the spirit is endued with grace and holiness. And when it is filled with the strength of Jesus Christ, this is the way a godly man gets contentment, the mystery of it, by getting strength from Jesus Christ. Twelve, a godly heart enjoys much of God in everything he has and knows how to make up all wants in God himself. That is another mystery. He has God in what he has. I spoke about that somewhat before in showing the due of God's blessing in what one has. For God is able to let out a great deal of his power in little things. And therefore the miracles that God has wrought have been as much in little things as in great. Now just as God lets out a great deal of power in working miracles in smaller things, so he lets out a great deal of goodness and mercy in comforting and rejoicing the hearts of his people in little things as well as in great there may be as great riches in a pearl as in a great deal of lumber, but this is a different thing. Further, just as a gracious heart lives upon God's due in the little that he has, so in the little that he has, that he shall be taken from him, what shall he do then? Well, then you will say, if a man has nothing, nothing can be taken out of nothing. But if the children of God have their little taken from them, they can make up all their wants in God himself. Such and such a man is a poor man. The plunderers came and took away everything he had. What shall he do now that all is gone? But when all is gone, there is an art and skill that godliness teaches to make up those losses in God. Many men whose houses have been burnt go about gathering and so get together by many hands a little. But godly man knows where to go, to get up all, even in God himself so that he may enjoy the quintessence of the same good and comfort as he had before. For a godly man does not live so much in himself as he lives in God. Now this is a mystery to a carnal heart. I say a gracious man does not live so much in himself as in God. He lives in God continually. If anything is cut off from the stream, he knows how to go to the fountain and makes up all there. God is his all in all. While he lives, I say it is God who is all in all. And not I to thee, said Elkanah to Hannah, instead of ten children. So says God to a gracious heart. You lack this, your estate is plundered. Why, am I not to you, instead of ten homes and ten shops? Am I to you, instead of all, and not only instead of all, but come to me and you shall have all again in me? This indeed is an excellent art to be able to draw from God what one has before in the creature. Christian, how did you enjoy comfort before? Was the creature anything to you but a conduit, a pipe that conveys God's goodness to you? The pipe is cut off, said God. Well, come to me, the fountain, and drink immediately. 
Though the beams are taken away, yet the sun remains the same and the firmament as ever it was. What is it that satisfies God himself, but that he enjoys all fullness in himself, so he comes to have satisfaction in himself? Now, if you enjoy God as your portion, if your soul can say with the church in Lamentations 3.24, The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Why should you not be satisfied and contented like God? God is contented. He is in eternal contentment in himself. Now, if you have that God as your portion, why should you not be contented with him alone? Since God is contented with himself alone, if you have him, you may be contented with him alone. And it may be that is the reason why your outward comforts are taken from you, that God may be all in all to you. It may be that while you had these things, they shared with God in your affliction. A great part of the stream of your affection ran that way. Well, God would have the full stream run to him now. You know when a man has water coming to his house through several pipes and he finds insufficient water comes into his wash house, he would rather stop the other pipes that he may have all the water come in where he wants it. Perhaps then God had a stream of your affections running to him when you enjoyed these things. Yes, but a great deal was allowed to escape to the creature. A great deal of your affections ran waste. Now the Lord would not have the affections of his children run waste. He does not care for other men's affections, but yours are precious. And God would not have them to run waste. Therefore, he has cut off your other pipes, that your heart may flow fully, wholly to him. If you have children, and because you let your servants perhaps feed them and give them things, you perceive that your servants are stealing away the hearts of your children, you would hardly be able to bear it. You'd be ready to send away such a servant. When the servant is gone, the child is at a great loss. It has not got the nurse, but the father or mother intends by sending her away that the affections of the child might run more strongly toward himself or herself. And what loss is it to the child that the affections that ran in a rough channel before toward the servant run now toward the mother? So those affections that run toward the creature, God would have run toward himself that so he may be all in all to you here in this world. A gracious heart can indeed tell how to enjoy God as all in all to him. That is the happiness of heaven, to have God to be all in all. The saints in heaven do not have houses and lands and money and meat and drink and clothes, you will say. They do not need them. Well, why not? It is because God is all in all to them immediately. Now, while you live in this world, you may come to enjoy much of God. You may have much of heaven. And while we live in this life, we may come to enjoy much of the very life that is in heaven. And what is that but the enjoyment of God to be all in all to us? There is one text in the Revelation that speaks of the glorious condition of the church that is likely to be here even in this world. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Revelation twenty-one twenty-two. They had no need of the sun or moon. It speaks of such a glorious, glorious condition that the church is likely to be in here in the world. This does not speak of heaven, but a glorious estate that the church shall be in here, in this world. And that appears plainly, for it follows immediately in the 24th and 26th verses. And the kings of earth do bring their glory and honor unto it. Why, 
The kings of earth shall not bring their glory and honor into heaven. But this is such a time when the kings of earth shall bring their glory and honor to the church. And the 26th verse, And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Therefore here it must mean this world and not heaven. Now if there is to be such a time here in this world, then God shall be all in all. And in comparison, there shall be no such need of creatures as there is now. Then the saints should labor to live as near that life as possible they can. That is to make up all in God. Oh, that you would consider this mystery, that it may be a reality to the hearts of the saints in such a time as these. They would find this privilege that they get by grace worth thousands of worlds. Hence it is that, that hence is that statement of Jacob's that I have mentioned in another case. It is remarkable, and it's very pertinent, pertinent here. In that remarkable speech of Jacob in Genesis 33, when his brother Esau met him, you find in one place that Esau refused Jacob's present. In the 8th verse, when Jacob gave his present to him, he refused it, and told Jacob that he had enough. What meanest thou by all that drove which I met? And he said, These are to find grace in thy sight. And Esau said, I have enough. Now in the 11th verse, Jacob urges it still, and says, Jacob, I beseech thee, take it, for I have enough. Now in your Bibles it is the same in English. I have enough, saith Esau, and I have enough, saith Jacob. But in the Hebrew, Jacob's word is different than Esau's. Jacob's word signifies, I have all things. And yet Jacob was poorer than Esau. Oh, this should be a shame to us that an Esau can say, I have enough. But a Christian should say, I have not only enough, I have all. How did he have all? Because he had God, who was all. It was a remarkable saying of one, He has all things who has him that has all things. Surely you have all things because you have him for your portion who has all things. God has all things in himself, and you have God for your portion, and in that you have all. And this is the mystery of contentment. It makes up all its wants in God. This is what the men of the world have little skill in. Now, I have many other things still to open in the mystery of contentment, and I should show likewise that a godly man not only makes up everything in God, but finds, himself, finds enough in himself to make up all, to make up everything in himself, not from himself, but in himself. And that may seem to be stranger than the other. To make up everything in God is something. Nay, to make up everything in himself, not from himself, but in himself. A gracious heart has so much of God within himself that he has enough there to make up all his outward wants. In Proverbs 14, 14, we read, A good man shall be satisfied from himself, from that which is, is within himself. That is the meaning. A gracious man has a bird within his own bosom, which makes him melody enough, though he lacks music. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Luke seventeen twenty one. He has a kingdom within him, a kingdom of God. You see him spoken ill of abroad, but he has a conscience within him that makes up the want of a name and credit that is instead of a thousand witnesses. 13. A gracious heart gets contentment from the covenant that God has made with him. Now, this is a way of getting contentment that the men of the world do not know. They can get contentment if they have the creature to satisfy them. But in getting contentment from the covenant of grace, they have little skill. 
I should have opened two things here. First, how to get contentment from the covenant of grace in general. But I shall speak of that in the next sermon, and now only a word on the second. Secondly, how he gets contentment from the particular branches of the covenant. That is, from the particular promises that he has for supplying every particular want. There is no condition that a godly man or woman can be in, but there is some promise or other in the scripture to help him in that condition. And that is the way of his contentment, to go to the promises, to get from the promise that which may supply. This is but a dry business to a carnal heart, but it is the most real thing in the world to a gracious heart. When he finds lack of contentment, he repairs to the promise and the covenant and falls to pleading the promises that God has made. As I should have shown, several promises that God has made, whatever the affliction, I will only mention one. That is the saddest affliction of all in the case of the visitation and the plague. Psalm 91. Those whose friends cannot come to them by reason of the plague and who cannot have other comforts and other affliction might have their friends and other things to comfort them, but in that they cannot. We read, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. Then there is a promise for the pestilence in the fifth and sixth verses. This is a scripture to those who are in danger of it. You will say that this is a promise that the plague shall not come nigh to them, but mark that these two are joined. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall the plague come nigh thee. The evil of it shall not come nigh thee. Objection. You will say, but it does not come to many godly men, and how can they make use of the scripture? It does come to many godly men, the plague. It is rather a scripture that may trouble them, because here is a promise that it shall not come nigh them, and yet it does come nigh them, as well as others. Answer. One, the promises of outward deliverance that were made to the people of God in the time of the law were to be understood then a great deal more literally and fulfilled more literally than in the times of the gospel when God makes it up otherwise with as much mercy. Though God made a covenant of grace and eternal life in Christ with them, yet I think there was another covenant too, which God speaks of as a distinct covenant for outward things, to deal with his people according to their ways, either in outward prosperity or in outward affliction, more so than now, in a more punctual, set way than in the times of the gospel. Therefore, when the children of Israel sinned against God, they were sure to have public judgments come upon them, and if they did well, always public mercies. The general constant way of God was to deal with the people of the Jews according to, according as they did, well or ill, with outward judgment and outward mercies. But it is not so now in the times of the gospel. We cannot bring such a certain conclusion that if God did deal so severely with men and by such and such afflictions, he will deal so with them now, or that they shall have outward prosperity as they had then. Therefore, that is the first thing for understanding this and all other texts of this kind. Two, perhaps their faith does not attain to the promise. And God often brings many outward afflictions because the faith of his people does not reach the promise. And not only in the Old Testament, but in the times of the New Testament. Zechariah's time may, have, may, have, may be said to be in the time of the New Testament when he was struck with a dumbness because he did not believe. And that is given as the cause why he was struck of the dumbness. But you will say now, has faith a warrant to believe deliverance that it shall be fully delivered? Well, I dare not say so, but it may act upon it to believe that God will make it good in his own way. 
Perhaps you've not done as much, and so because of that, this promise is not fulfilled to you. 3. When God makes such a promise to his people, yet still it must be with this reservation, that God must have liberty for these three things. First, that notwithstanding his promise, he will have liberty to make use of anything for your chastisement. Two, second, that he must have liberty to make use of your wealth or liberties or lives for the furtherance of his own ends, if it is to be a stumbling block to wicked and and ungodly men. God must have liberty. Though he has made a promise to you, he will not release the property, propriety, that he has in your possessions and lives. Third, God must have sufficient liberty to make use of what you have to show that his ways are unsearchable and his judgments past finding out. God reserves these three things in his hand still. Objection. But you will say, what good then is there in such a promise that God makes to his people? One, that you're under the protection of God more than others. But what comfort is this if it befalls me? Answer, you have this comfort, that the evil of it shall be taken from you. What if God's will, what if God will make use of this affliction for other ends, yet he will do it so as to make it up to you some other way? Perhaps you have given your children something, but afterwards, if you have a use for that thing, you will come along and say, I must have it. Well, why, Father? The child may say. You gave it to me. Oh, but I must have it, said the father, and I will make it up to you some other way. The child does not think the father's love is ever a whit the less to him. So when there is such any such promise as this, that God by his promise gives you his protection, and yet for all that such a thing befalls you, it is only as, the, as if the father should say, I gave you that indeed, but let me have it, and I will make it up to you in some other way that shall be as good. God says, let me have your health and liberty and life, and it shall be made up to you in some other way. Number two, whenever the plague or pestilence comes to those who are under such a promise, it is for some special and notable work, and God requires them to search and examine in a special manner to find out his meaning. There is so much to be learned in the promise that God has made concerning the particular evil that the people of God may come to quiet and content their hearts in this affliction. I read in this psalm that God has made a promise to his people to deliver them from the plague and pestilence, and yet I find it has come. It may be that I have not made use of my faith in this promise heretofore. And if God brings afflictions upon me, yet he will make it up some other way. God made a promise to deliver me, or at least to deliver me from all the evil of it. Now if this thing does befall me, and yet I have a promise of God, certainly the evil of it is taken away. This promise tells me that if it does befall me, yet it is for some notable end, and because God has a use for my life, and he intends to bring about his glory some way that I do not know of. And if he will come in a fatherly way of chastisement, yet I will be satisfied in the thing. So a Christian heart, by reasoning out of the word, comes to satisfy his soul in the midst of such a heavy hand of God, and in such a distressed condition as that. Now, carnal hearts do not find the power in the word, that healing virtue that is in it, to heal their distracting cares and the troubles of their spirits. But when those who are godly come to hear the word, they find in it, as it were, a plaster for all of their wounds. And so they come to have ease and contentment in such conditions as are very grievous and miserable to others. 
But as for other particular promises, and more generally for the covenant of grace, how and in what a mysterious way the saints work to get contentment and satisfaction to their souls, we shall refer to these things in the next chapter.